You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. take your Bibles and turn to Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 15. Lord willing, we'll look at verses 16 through 20 this morning. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures in front of you, uh, inside your bulletin, uh, there are notes, quotes, references, blanks you can fill in as we go along, and of course, a copy of of God's Word. We want to make sure uh, that we are preaching the Bible to you. And then if you're uh, watching from home, uh, you can either download that digital bulletin, uh, text bulletin to our text and church number, or uh, you can go and download the version Bible app. That's Y-O-U version. After you download it, go to the More tab, then tap Events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church, and click on today's sermon title. Mark chapter 15, we'll look at verses 16 through 20. In this sermon series, I've simply entitled King Jesus, King Jesus, and part one is a comedy, a comedy. Have you ever told a joke and someone reply, too soon, too soon? When is a joke too soon to tell? The television personality Steve Allen presented this viewpoint on the origin of comedy. The subjects of most comedies are tragic. Sadly, we joke about drunkenness, being overweight, financial problems, and accidents that we have. The dreadful events of the day pretty soon become a fit subject for humorous comment. We joke about the things that depress us, but we usually wait till a certain amount of time has passed, so it's in good taste. Steve Allen put it this way, he made a mathematical equation, tragedy plus Tom, which is the benefit of perspective, equals comedy. Tragedy plus Tom equals comedy comedy. Josephus was a first century Jewish historian. In his work Antiquities, Josephus describes how the Jews were crucified in first century Palestine. He writes this, so the Roman soldiers out of the wrath and hatred they bore or carried the Jews, nailed those that they caught one after another to the crosses by the way of jest, a joke. When their multitude was so great, that room was wanting, lacking for the crosses and crosses lacking for the bodies. You see the cruelty of the Roman soldiers during this period as they oppressed the Jews to crucify them in mass was just a joke. It was a jest. And they did this so much and so often. Did you hear that last sign of how Josephus describes this period of history? 
that room was wanting for crosses and crosses were wanting for bodies. Didn't have enough crosses and didn't have enough space to put the crosses. To some Roman soldiers, crucifixion was just a cruel comedy. The Gospel of Mark, along with Matthew and Luke, is one of the synoptic Gospels. It means that their content is very similar. Mark is the second Gospel in the New Testament canon, or in the New Testament order, but it's generally held to be the first Gospel composed or written. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. It is traditionally ascribed to a friend of the Apostles, John Mark. He traveled with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, a family member. According to early church tradition, Mark, while he was visiting in Rome, preserved the Apostle Peter's words for Roman Christians shortly before Peter's death. So Mark is a record record or an arrangement of Peter's memories of the gospel. And it has, so this book is produced and based on apostolic witness. Where we're at here in Mark chapter 15, I know we jumped kind of near the end of the book, so let me catch you up. Jesus has been flogged, a typical preliminary to crucifixion, and it was meant to weaken the one to be crucified, as so to hasten the crucifixion and death. Jesus must have been barely able to stand or walk at this point. His back is soaked in blood. And now the soldiers stage a mock coronation. And I'm going to do this for the sake of having... I want you for for this moment to not read this text with the benefit of history. I want us to kind of drop back in time to 30 A.D. when this happened, and to see it with our own eyes without any of the story that we know that follows the apostolic witness and church tradition and church history. What would we have done if we were walking in the sandals of first century Jews looking at this man from Nazareth be harassed and mocked by Roman oppressors And eventually led to be crucified. And so I'm going to read this text in a way as if it were coming from the Roman soldiers. Talking about just another day on Calvary. All right. So listen to this. It says this in Mark 15, 16 through 20. It says, we led him away into the palace. That's the governor's residence and called the whole company together. We dressed him in a purple robe. Twisted together a crown of thorns and we put it on him. And we began to salute him. Hell, king of the Jews. We were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on our knees, we were paying him homage. And after we mocked him, we stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. And then we let him out to crucify him. It's just one big cruel joke for the Roman soldiers that day. Nothing of significance, just another Jew being oppressed, led to Calvary to die. What's the big deal? Let's consider this from the vantage point of the soldiers and this comedy that they've created. 
First thing, if you'll note, is that King Jesus here is mocked by the whole company. And I don't know if you've ever envisioned quite like what, what you would have seen on the ground floor in, in Israel that day. A company typically had 200 to 600 men. A company. Depending on the placement of that company, which this would have been during a festival in Jerusalem, so they're probably, they probably would have been spread out over the city of Jerusalem, and then what time of their duty, if they were off duty or on duty. But I want you to think about what's happening, is that news is spreading fast through the praetorium that a Jew was to be crucified. And this Jew in particular, as we'll read through the book of Mark, was claiming that he was the king of the Jews. Now think about that real quick from just a political standpoint. There's this rogue Jew that's sitting out there telling Jews and Gentiles, Roman oppressors, I am the rightful king and governor of the people of Israel. And the Romans now have a hold of him. You see how this works? So this news of this gentleman passed through the praetorium and to the whole company. Soldiers came running. This would be too good to miss. It was not every day they could practice their jokes on a king of the Jews. Soon the whole company had arrived. Jesus stood there. His whole body aflame with terrible agony of the scourging that he had undergone. And little did these Romans care about his condition. In their joke, the first thing that they said is, This king has to have a robe. King Jesus must have a robe. So a soldier flings his scarlet military mantle, what they wear, over Jesus' bleeding shoulders. Matthew 27, 28 says that this purple robe was a scarlet military mantle worn by Roman soldiers. So why the designation of Mark saying this is a purple robe and not a scarlet robe? There's no discrepancy here. The scarlet military cloak need not be genuine purple because the whole incident was a cruel joke. This Roman soldier's scarlet cloak wrapped around Jesus was representing the emperor's purple and Jesus' pretended greatness. Do you see what they're doing? This is child's play. This is dress up that they're doing with Jesus. So they, quote, give him a purple robe because of his kingly status. Then someone must shout out, the king must have a crown. He's a king, right? Let's give him a crown. So someone with a brutal sense of humor twisted long, sharp thorns into a crown and then they jammed it on Jesus' head. Matthew gives us a little more detail and he puts a stick in Jesus' hand like a king's scepter. So now Jesus is there with this scarlet Roman mantle wrapped across his bleeding shoulders, long thorns jammed on his head and he's holding this little stick, a thin measly stick as a scepter. And then the soldiers figure out, well, if he's a king, we got to go all the way. We need to give him a court, people to honor him and give him homage. So the soldiers gather around this pretend King Jesus and they begin to spit on him. They strike him. 
and they salute him in mocking tones. They literally are recasting what they would have told Caesar. Instead of hell Caesar, they say hell king of the Jews. A king who goes about this process so meekly, enduring abuse as an obvious target for mockery in light of the world's toughest men. You knew something wasn't right with this situation. And I want you to remember this. Remember these Roman soldiers because it becomes important throughout the passion narrative and how they perceive Jesus and how that perception even changes over time because of how he endures their mockery, their spitting, their striking. With the fun over, the soldiers put Jesus into his own clothes. Charles Spurgeon had a wonderful sermon that Jesus went in his own clothes, not his Sunday best, to die for you. Now, here's what I want us to do. That's all we would have saw that day. And this is something you need to think about. If that's the end of the story, if that's the story, if Jesus then is just simply let out to be crucified, and what we're left with when it comes to Jesus of Nazareth is at best, at best, an innocent person enduring injustice, cruel mockery, and execution that he didn't deserve. I want you to catch this. That still does not give us the book of Acts, and the church as we know it. I do not believe you and I would be sitting here today gathered around this book to hear, quote, the preaching of God's word if the story ends there. But let's go back to our formula real quick of what comedy is. It's tragedy plus what? Tom equals comedy. What happens if we have a little more time in this story? What happens if we gain the benefit of perspective? It changes this comedy into a tragedy. It does. But then I'll, let me ramp it up one more time. Catch this. All it took was three days later and we find out that God was involved in this process and turned this tragedy into your redemption. Did you catch that? It isn't just a comedy from the Roman soldier's perspective. From a historical perspective, it's not even a tragedy. If God is involved in this process, he is redeeming you through this man's mockery. Totally different. And that's why we've gathered here today. What do you mean redemption is a part of this comedy? It is, church. Here's the big idea that we're going to explore through the rest of our time together and write it down, is that God... In Christ was reconciling you to himself. God in Christ was reconciling you to himself. Here's the claim that Christians are making or ought to be making from every pulpit this morning. We disagree with these Roman soldiers that this was not a fit execution. Jesus was innocent. But we go so far to say this, not only was Jesus innocent, but he actually wasn't blasphemous nor treasonous. He was the Son of God, and he is the King of the Jews. And you and I, as we'll tell, all have a piece and part to play in his crucifixion. 
And what we're saying and what makes this story redemptive, think about what we do as Christians. We constantly sing about the shed blood of Jesus. You understand from the world's perspective, unbelieving perspective, that's ludicrous. What group gathers together to celebrate the crucifixion of a Jew 2,000 years ago? Because we realize because of his resurrection and faith, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the apostolic tradition, their witness about what Jesus has done, that God in Christ was reconciling you to himself. There was something going on in an invisible cosmic level that the soldiers didn't see that day. And that's what we preach and proclaim to you, that Jesus was the Christ. He was the one, the hero that the Old Testament prophesied, and that he came to this earth to shed his blood and die on the cross for your sin, not anything that he had done. And how, why do we cherish this man? Why do we honor this man? Why do we worship Jesus as the true God of Israel? Because God raised Jesus from the dead and say, preach the forgiveness of sin in Jesus' name only. We preach Jesus. And notice this. Think about how just, I mean, absurd it would have been in the first century world to walk around and say, here's our gospel message. Here's the church. We preach a king who was crucified by the Romans. And the Apostle Paul says, and that's the power of God into salvation. What? Oh, he goes, I know it's foolishness. What king gets crucified and then is honored? Because God raised him from the dead and gave him a name above every name. That's what changes our perspective on this story. That's what we're calling you to believe. Listen to these texts. This is from earlier in the book of Mark. And Jesus explained, and it's kind of one of those things, I'm sure, that when Jesus said it, his followers just kind of outright dismissed it, going, what's he talking about? Mark 10, 45 says, For the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite self-designation or nickname for himself. It goes back to Daniel chapter 7. He says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is a payment for someone's freedom. I'm going to pay a price that will free many people. And again, I think the disciples are kind of like, what? what? <laughs> In Mark 14, 24, he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. At that last supper, Jesus is talking about the new covenant in which there's the forgiveness of sin in which God will never remember any person's sin anymore. How, how do you get God to forget your sin? The blood of Jesus. And he says, and I poured it out for you. For you. Acts 20, 28. Pay, pay, uh, pay close, uh, close attention to what the Apostle Paul says to the, the Ephesian elders here. He says, be on guard for yourselves. And for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God. And notice this last line, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, let that sink in for a minute. The church of God, which he, the antecedent is God, which God purchased with his own blood. Now, if you know this, I mean, even if you just think of the philosopher's God, you don't even have to think about Christian theism for a minute. God is spirit. 
He has no body. Do you understand that? How can we sit there and say God bled to purchase you? And this is what we're saying when we read Mark 15, is that when we're seeing Jesus enduring this mockery, going through this cruel comedy, that here's what we're saying. It was God in Christ. The fullness of God dwelled bodily. God endured that mockery. They became a part of humanity's cruel joke for your redemption to set you free and to buy you back into his family. What an amazing thought. That's what we're saying. As Christians, we're saying we see God doing this. God being spit on. Did you catch that? Put these things together, and this is what I'm wanting to teach you theologically. It's the God-man Jesus here who fulfills prophecy. Here's another main thing. This is not plan B. This was God's plan all along. The scriptures recite for us over and over again that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain from the foundation of the world. Before God even spoke the world into existence, Jesus was set to don the cross for our sin. So to prophesize, no big deal for God to tell you about how this is going to shake down. <laughs> Listen to what it says in Isaiah 50, verse 6. He says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. Beard, I hid not my face from mocking and spitting. This is in reference to the suffering servant of Isaiah, and Jesus is he. <laughs> the God-man Jesus suffered to save you. He suffered to save you. Now sin, as we well know, the Bible teaches this over and over again, is removed by the shedding of blood. You say, why does it take the shedding of blood, the death of whether it was an animal in the Old Testament, a sacrificial system that covered our sin, like a blemish and makeup? And then we have Jesus's, through the eternal spirit, according to Hebrews, who offered his perfect blood that not just covers sin, but cleanses it, expiates it, removes it, turns away God's wrath once and for all. An amazing thing. Why does bloodshed have to be a part of sin? Because sin incurs death. Someone or something is absorbing God's wrath in death for you. That's the grace of God. That he has offered someone else in your place. And the power and the fruit of Jesus' suffering, what we're seeing here, what's the result of this cruel mockery, this cruel comedy, is that it actually is the forgiveness of your sin being bought in this. I want you to see that. Think about this, and Spurgeon notes it. The man by whom we are redeemed is crowned with that product of the earth which came of the curse. What's he in reference there to is back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, when humanity first rebelled against God in the garden. God comes down and he curses the earth. And what does he prophesy? Tells us right there. What will come up out of the ground as a result of the curse? Thorns. Thorns. You will have to labor hard to get the produce from the ground. 
and thorns was the, one of the first physical, visible signs of God's curse on our existence because we rebelled against him. And here's what we, we find so amazing about Jesus. Jesus doesn't come and just theorizes about our sin. When his sin is transferred onto his shoulders and he bears his sin in his body, I want you to see he experienced that curse right along with us. The thorns that we are responsible for was crowned, it crowned his head and pierced his temples. Do you see that? Those are our thorns on God's head. Church father of the third century, Cyprian, writes it this way, in his very passion and cross, before they had reached the cruelty of death and the effusion of blood, the shedding of blood, what infamies of reproach were patiently heard. What mockings of abuse were suffered. So he received the spittings of insulters. Who with his spittle. Think about this. Jesus with his own spit had just a little before made the eyes of a blind man see. His spit caused sight to come back into an eye. And yet here... The God of the universe is standing, letting his creatures spit on him. Do you understand that? The man who created them. Every single one of us was created through Christ Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nothing was made except through the Word. And it says this, And he in whose name the devil and his angels is now scourged, by his servants himself suffered scourging. Did you catch that? By the devil's servants, Jesus experienced scourging when his name can make the devils flee. He was crowned with thorns who crowns martyrs with eternal flowers. He was smitten on the face with palms who gives the true palms to those who overcome. He was despoiled of his earthly garment who clothes others in the vesture of immorality. Immortality. You see how that works? Jesus was disrobed and shamed so that we could be clothed with the righteousness of God and eternal life. I read this earlier this week. It says, to me, one of the most convincing proofs regarding Christianity's truthfulness, and, he, and here it is, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event in church, any church or preacher that does not present this as the central event of what Christianity is about has missed it. Ready? But as its central event, the humiliation of its own God. Think about that. What do we come in glory in and rejoice over? God came down, became a servant, took upon the likeness of man and was crucified, became obedient to death, and we celebrate it. Why? Because in that, he was forgiving us and redeeming us. The last and final thing I want to mention to you here is that the God-man Jesus suffered to set you an example. I would love to tell you and not looking at the context of the entire biblical canon, was now that Jesus has suffered for you, you'll never suffer again. That's not what the cross does. Okay? There will come a time and place where we will experience his resurrection in full, and we will be healed of every sickness, sin, and disease. That's in glory. 
But in the meantime, it's important to note the apostolic witness to say this. Why did he suffer? Not only did he suffer to save us from our sin, which incurs the wrath of God and eternal damnation, but he actually, in his suffering, set us an example of how to live life in a world that's full of this cruelty. If Jesus endured it, he has an expectation that his followers endure it. And in case you never do, Jesus actually said it, and it wasn't metaphorical. Take up your cross, follow me. Okay? Get ready. He's, he's out front with it. Now, I want you to go back for just a moment. So now we're going to step away from 30 A.D. and go to about 60 A.D. And think about the Apostle Peter and this guy named John Mark penning this book of Mark. Right? you got to think, they're talking to Roman Christians in Rome who's probably under Neronian persecution. Emperor Nero is beginning to persecute Romans at that time. These people, Romans are starting to persecute Christians in the city of Rome at that time. Now here's a question. <laughs> what, what, how are you going to call those people to remain true to Jesus when the emperor, Caesar, is putting this kind of pressure on them? And what I love about about Peter and, and John Mark, here's what they tell them. Tell them about Jesus. <laughs> See how that works? They don't say, hey, man, it's going to get better. They didn't tell them that. Let me just tell you about your Savior. That's what they said. Listen to what 1 Peter 2, 20 through 21 says. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? So like when you deserve it, you should get it, Okay. But notice the, the another part, he says, But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. You want to follow in his steps. This is what's hard, church. I'm not saying, this is one of those ones that's a lot easier to preach than to live out. Is, is Jesus, when this cruel joke is going on, not only is he saving you, redeeming you, he's like, come follow me. Step in my shoes. Let the world mock you. Let them be cruel to you. <laughs> You're like, no, our sinful nature rails against that, doesn't it? But we do it for Jesus' name and his sake to the glory of God and even for the good of others. Because just remember, just put it away. Follow what those Roman soldiers see through the rest of the story. It's an amazing thing. The brutal Roman soldiers had the upper hand in this story. But they did not know the true power and the authority of the man they were torching. Are you ready to make this even more sweet about our Jesus? Jesus is there hanging on the cross, looking over those Roman soldiers. And what does he pray for them? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What? Just forgive them. Church, I mean, we were talking about this in Sunday school. What could be more heinous than literally crucifying the Son of God to the cross? I, don't, I can't think of anything. And yet Jesus forgave them. Did you catch that? <laughs> the soldiers, despite their intention, did acknowledge in both word and deed Jesus' true identity. And yet throughout all of this, in some ways, and this is Mark's kind of irony, he goes, did you see that they still bowed their knee and called him Lord? <laughs> did you see that? Because they did. 
Worldly powers and philosophies mock Jesus' lordship. But I, I want you to know this, church. We will not be so arrogant at his second coming. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be no mocking that time. Notice in his gracious advent, people, no matter the intention, can get on their knees and mock Jesus' lordship. But there is coming a day, and it, it, you say, this sounds threatening. It's meant to be. Where the, where the clouds will be rolled back, Jesus will appear, the wrath of God will be evident, and as we read in the book of Revelation, rocks let them fall on me who is able to endure the wrath of God. No one is. No one is. In his first advent, he comes meek, humble, preparing a path to citizenship into the kingdom of heaven through his suffering for your forgiveness. At his second coming, he's coming to expose the truth about everything. Christ, by coming, by becoming the derision of his creatures, has atoned for the criminality of the creatures in mocking God and religion. If you're one of those persons who say, well, man, I've done nothing but mock God all my life. Jesus is like, welcome to the party. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. People who mock me can still be forgiven. Praying or paying for the sin of the world was costly. And it was Jesus' tremendous love for us that kept him on the course to the cross. That's even the harder part. Understand, the scriptures point out over and over again that it's not because God looked down over humanity and go, they sure are lovely and, and deserve a chance of redemption. That's not what the Bible paints. God was under no compulsion but his own good pleasure than to come down and to suffer for you. You say, why would he do that? Because he himself chose to love you. He chose to love you. And that's, that's a freeing thing when God's love for us is not based in anything I've done, but in his own unchanging character. That's a good thing. I want you to listen to Cyprian one last time, and you've got to pay real close attention to catch the last line he says. He says, after all these things, he still receives his murderers. If they will be converted and come to him. And with a saving patience, he, benignant to preserve, closes his church to none. Closes his church to none. Those adversaries, those blasphemers, those who, uh, those who are always enemies to his name, if they repent of their sin, if they acknowledge the crime committed, he receives not only to the pardon of their sin, but to the reward of the heavenly kingdom. Said, more patient, what? More merciful. <laughs> and then listen to this last line. Even he, the Roman soldier, is made alive by Christ's blood who has shed Christ's blood. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. That last line, I read that and was just blown away. 
The very person that shed Jesus' blood can be forgiven by Jesus' blood. That's the power of Jesus' blood. I don't know of any greater thing I could tell you today than that. But notice what Cyprian points out. Because of the loving kindness of Jesus, anybody who comes to him, no matter their sin, will be forgiven. They will be received with open arms, welcome into his church and kingdom. And notice, there, there are conditions, and I mean this, there has to be a recognition of your sin. I am a sinner and deserve Jesus' judgment. Repentance begins there with the true confession and acknowledging of our sin and then a turning to a lively faith in Jesus. That only Jesus can save me. And we just simply rest in this sacrificial death that he did for our, sin, our sins to forgive us. If you're ready to repent, to acknowledge you're a sinner and commit your life to Christ, to follow after him, to rest wholly in him, to orient your life around Jesus, today's the day where you can call upon him and be saved. Jesus is the son of God. He is not dead. He is alive and hears our thoughts and whispers. It's true. And I'm going to share a prayer with you. There's nothing magical about this prayer. Nothing at all. But I want to lead you in a way that if you want to call out to Jesus to be saved, you can do that. Will you just repeat this quietly in your heart to King Jesus? He can hear you. Just say, dear Jesus, I confess I am a sinner and deserve your wrath. But I believe you love me. You came down for me. You endured mockery. You were even spit on and shed your blood for me. And I believe God raised you from the dead. Please forgive me. Make me a part of your church and your kingdom. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to encourage you that if you called out to Jesus, you claim to know him, the next step in our walk with Christ and following him is to go public with this confession and commitment to Christ. And the way we do that is we do it through this means of baptism. Baptism is when we go under the water and we show and say and identify with Jesus' death for our sins. And when we come up out of the water, we're showing and saying we believe in Jesus' resurrection for our forgiveness and eternal life. And my encouragement to you is the next thing is be baptized. Lovingly obey Jesus' command to come and confess him and witness to him through baptism. You can sign up on the back of that tear-off panel, text BELIEVE to our text and church number, or fill out the baptism form on our website. Give me a chance to talk to you about the next step of baptism. The last thing that I want us to do in our time of reflection is I want to read a prayer to you from John Wesley. And it says this. Stacy, you can begin to play when you're ready. Oh, Jesus, insulted, mocked, and spit upon, have mercy upon me. And let me run with patience the race set before me. Oh, Jesus, dragged to the pillar, scourged, and bathed in blood, have mercy upon me. And let me not faint in the fiery trial. 
O Jesus, crowned with thorns and held in derision. O Jesus, burdened with our sins and the curses of the people. O Jesus, affronted, outraged, buffeted, overwhelmed with injuries, griefs, and humiliations. O Jesus, hanging on the accursed tree, bowing the head, giving up the ghost, have mercy upon me and conform my whole soul to your holy, humble, suffering spirit. O you who for the love of me have undergone such an infinity of sufferings and humiliations, let me be emptied of myself that I may rejoice to take up my cross daily and follow you. Enable me too to endure the pain and despise the shame and if it be your will to resist even unto blood. Will you pray Wesley's prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son uh, as the most precious gift to ever grace this earth. We see that you bankrupted heaven and gave us nothing more than yourself. How could we ever uh, thank you, praise you, um, worship you enough? I mean, it's beyond our comprehension. Uh, so we come in, in awe uh, with our souls still before you. And we ask that you would help us by your spirit to live lives of grateful obedience to you. Lord, I thank you uh, for Jesus' endurance through cruel mockery uh, for us. Forgive us of our rebellion, our sin against you. Wash us clean in Jesus' blood. And then, Lord, give us the assurance and hope of resurrection life in Christ. We thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word to hear the story one more time. Lord, may we never tire of it. We pray this in Jesus' strong name and all God's people say, amen. I've got just a couple of quick announcements I want to share with you, and, uh, and then we'll 
Uh, have one last song and be dismissed. Uh, don't forget about the Easter drive-through story. I do have one correction I meant to say. It's the Saturday before Palm Sunday, not Easter Sunday, okay? So the Saturday before Palm Sunday. Uh, if, you, uh, if you're planning to participate in it, uh, to bring your family and drive through, receive those baskets and the bags, uh, please just text EGG egg to our text in church number. And I think literally just going to send you a, a reply that's like, how many do we need to prepare? And you just send the number back, all right? So we can have a, a better uh, way of doing it. So there's no, you don't have to fill in any names. You don't have to give us uh, anything other than just the number. Uh, also, if you want to serve, okay, that day, volunteer. Uh, and so that the, especially um, some of these young families with kids can uh, you know, be together. If you want to help participate and, and serve, just text serve to our texting church number, and I'll make sure that gets to Kay or Stephanie. Um, if you're 20s, 20-year-old, 30-year-olds, don't forget next Sunday, Fundamentals of the Faith uh, with uh, Dr. John David Harris. I don't know how you want to do that. Uh, but he'll be here, and, uh, and we'll be participating in that. If you want a book, okay, that we've got 20 right now. If I need to get more, that's fine. Uh, but text F-O-F, the letter O, F-O-F, uh, to our texting church number. And I, I, it may just say thanks for texting. So it's, it's nothing uh, long or anything like that. And then next week, RSVP, RSVP for church. Uh, do your best to do that just so that we can continue to maintain uh, some social distancing in here. I'm excited to see uh, many people coming back. And we look forward to that. But you can RSVP one of three ways on the side of that tear-off panel. On the back, it's got the little boxes. I literally just need your name in the box you want to check off, which Sunday you're going to be here. Uh, or you can text RSVP to our texting church number. Um, or go on our website, mtcarmeldimmers.com, and click reserve. I think that's everything I've got. Thank you so much for coming to worship with us today. After Brother uh, Rick comes and leads us one last song, you'll be dismissed. Feel free. Go, go hang out outside as Brother Jason prayed. It's a beautiful day. And so let's enjoy it together there. Brother Rick. Oh, what a tragedy turned into joy for us. All right, guys, let's stand together as we sing this. Press on this week that on that higher ground, on the upper way. Sing in one verse, higher ground. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.